Luke chapter 2. Normally in our homes, it is customary for us, our home, to read the Christmas story, usually after breakfast, remind ourselves why we're celebrating this day. Uh, We don't know much about the birth of Christ. In fact, we only have two accounts. We have a very brief account in Matthew chapter 1 of the angel appearing to Joseph to explain what Mary's pregnancy was all about. And then we have this um, fuller account, although it is still brief and not very rich in detail uh, when we compare it with other types of birth narratives. But it is the fullest account we have in the Scriptures. And so what I'd like for us to do this morning is to read the whole thing. You have, hopefully, a copy of God's Word open. I'm going to read it for us. Luke chapter 2, verses 1 through 20, and then we're going to circle back around to verse 11. In those days, a decree went out from Caesar Augustus that all the world should be registered. This was the first registration when Quirinius was governor of Syria, and all went to be registered each to his town. And Joseph also went up from Galilee, from the town of Nazareth, to Judea, to the city of David, which is called Bethlehem, because he was of the house and lineage of David. So he registered with Mary, his betrothed, who was with child. And while they were there, the time came for her to give birth. And she gave birth to her firstborn son and wrapped him in swaddling cloths and laid him in a manger because there was no place for them in the inn. And in the same region there were shepherds out in the field, keeping watch over their flock by night. And an angel of the Lord appeared to them, and the glory of the Lord shone around them, and they were filled with great fear. And the angel said to them, Fear not. For behold, I bring you good news of great joy that will be for all the people. For unto you is born this day in the city of David a Savior, who is Christ the Lord. And this will be a sign for you. You will find a baby wrapped in swaddling cloths and lying in a manger. And suddenly there was with the angel a multitude of the heavenly host praising God and saying, Glory to God in the highest, and on earth peace among those with whom he is pleased. When the angels went away from them into heaven, the shepherds said to one another, Let us go over to Bethlehem and see this thing that has happened, which the Lord has made known to us. And they went with haste and found Mary and Joseph and the baby lying in the manger. And when they saw it, they made known the saying that had been told them concerning this child. And all who heard it wondered at what the shepherds told them. But Mary treasured up all these things, pondering them in her heart. And the shepherds returned, glorifying and praising God for all they had seen and heard as it had been told them. Well, earlier we sang a song that asked a profound question. It's a question that's worthy of our consideration. What child is this? Who is this baby born in Bethlehem 2,000 years ago? The details surrounding his birth on the surface make him seem ordinary, even insignificant. He was born to an unwed teenage mother from a hick town in a backwater province in the mightiest empire of the ancient world. He was born on an ordinary night in a sleepy town in an animal stable because all appropriate lodging had been filled. He was even born away from home, the place where he would call his hometown. Because when his mother was full term, the Roman emperor required every man to return to his hometown for tax registration. Because he was born in a stable, his first crib was a feeding trough. And because of his poverty, his first clothes were swaddling cloths. He seemed so ordinary, even insignificant. 
And yet this seemingly insignificant child born on an ordinary night in the most undistinguished of places is celebrated and worshipped by millions, even billions, around the world on this very day. And that indicates to us that this child was much more than he seemed to be in the moment. What child is this? Who is this baby born in Bethlehem 2,000 years ago? Well, we know from the angel who spoke to the shepherds out in the field outside of Bethlehem on that first Christmas night. And in his announcement to them, he uses three titles to describe this child, to tell the shepherds and to tell us who this child is. He is Savior. He is Christ. And he is Lord. Let's look at those titles this morning a little bit more fully. What child is this? This child is a Savior. For unto you is born this day in the city of David a Savior who is Christ the Lord. A Savior is simply someone who saves. He is a rescuer or deliverer. and He delivers or rescues endangered peoples and brings them to safety. At the time that Jesus was born, the Jewish people were looking for a Savior. The Jewish people, the Jews, the Israelite, ancient Israelites had lost their political autonomy in 63 B.C. when the Roman Emperor Pompey came to the ancient land of Israel and brought it under Roman rule. And while the Romans allowed the Jews a measure of religious and cultural autonomy, the Jews felt the weight of Roman subjection. They felt it most notably in the heavy-handed rulers who ruled over them and through the military occupation, the soldiers who were there in their land and subjected the people to all kinds of ridicule and mockery. They felt it in a crushing tax burden. In fact, it was Caesar's decree for the Jews to report to their ancestral towns that brought Joseph and Mary to Bethlehem. The purpose for this decree was to take a census that would be instrumental in collecting taxes, the very taxes that the Jews despised. The Jews so desperately wanted to be relieved of this Roman yoke that they longed for a Savior to come and rescue them. And they had very good reason to believe that a Savior would come. In the Old Testament, God had revealed to Israel that He was not only a Savior, but He was the Savior. He was their Savior. David's song of praise in 2 Samuel 22, verses 2-4, through gives us an indication of this, where he says, The Lord is my rock and my fortress and my deliverer, my rock, my God, my rock in whom I take refuge, my shield and the horn of my salvation, my stronghold and my refuge, my Savior, you save me from violence. I call upon the Lord who is worthy to be praised, and I am saved from my enemies. Isaiah 43, verses 3 and 11, For I am the Lord your God, the Holy One of Israel, your Savior. I, I am the Lord, and besides me there is no Savior. In fact, if you do a word study of the word Savior in the Old Testament, the primary reference is to God, to Yahweh. Yahweh was Israel's Savior who delivered them from various types of peril, from enemies that seek to destroy and from disease that seeks to kill. 
And so it was natural at this time for Jews to, to look for this salvation. Under the crushing oppression of Rome, they looked to God for their political deliverance. Well, with this child that was born in Bethlehem 2,000 years ago, God would save His people. In fact, we read in the Old Testament that God often manifested His salvation by raising up human agents, judges and kings and other leaders. He would raise them up and they would rescue the people, God's people, from various crises that they faced. And Jesus would be a deliverer in that vein. But the kind of salvation that He came to bring was not political rescue. It was not a political deliverance from the hand of Rome. It was not delivering them from Roman oppression. This is not the kind of salvation He came to bring. He came to bring an even greater salvation. He came to bring them the salvation that they really needed. And what was that salvation? Well, to answer that question, we have to ask, what was the greatest danger the Jews faced? What was the salvation that they really needed? What was the danger that they really faced? It wasn't Rome. It wasn't poverty. It wasn't political enemies. It wasn't financial crises. It wasn't disease or illness. The greatest danger that the the Jews faced was from God Himself. In fact, if you go through and read and look for the phrase that I'm about to read to you, you'll find many examples in the Old Testament. Representative would be Jeremiah chapter 50, verse 31. Behold, I am against you, O proud one, declares the Lord of hosts. For your day has come, the time when I will punish you. You see, the Jews needed salvation from God Himself. Why would they need salvation from God? Because their sins had alienated them from God. Their sins had incited His wrath. See, brothers and sisters, we must understand that God is a holy God. And He required His people to be a holy people, to be holy as He is holy. But the story of the Old Testament revealed that the Israelites were bent on sinfulness. We're about ready to start a new year. Many of you will go and do a, a, a year through the Bible reading plan, right? Or you'll read through the Scriptures next year. Let me just remind you that when you get to those passages in Exodus and Leviticus, and Judges, and First and Second Kings, and even into the prophetic passages, Isaiah and Jeremiah, you're going to see over and over and over again that the Israelites were bent on sinfulness. They rebelled against God's authority. They rejected His commandments. They lived as they chose to live. They, they lived in a sinful way. That was the life of their choosing. Because God is a holy God, He cannot fellowship with unholy people. Unrighteousness and injustice demands God's righteous justice. And so the Jews had a more serious problem than Rome. They were in danger of God's wrath. But here is the blessed irony of the Bible. Who is the one who can save us from God Himself? Who is the one that can save us from God's wrath? Who can save us? Who is the one that can save us from eternal condemnation? Brothers and sisters, it is God Himself. The one in whom we are most in danger of is the one who also can save us from Himself. And so what did God do? He sent a Savior. He sent the Savior. He sent 
our Savior. Mary, Mary's Son, is the Savior who saves us from God's wrath because He saves us from our sins. This was the reason for Jesus' birth. Matthew one twenty one tells us that she, Mary, will bear a son and you shall call His name Jesus. Why? For He will save His people from their sins. And even His name, the name Jesus, indicates His mission. The name Jesus means the Lord saves. Jesus came into the world to save us. He came to deliver us from our sins. He came to rescue us from God's wrath. And He would do so by eventually going to the cross and dying in our place and paying the penalty for our sins. And by removing our sins from us, relationship with God is restored. And because that relationship is restored, we will live with Him forever and ever. Friends, Jesus came to bring us the salvation that we really needed. God was merciful to send His Son as our Savior that first Christmas. So what child is this? He is the Savior. He is our Savior. But this child is more than a Savior. The child is also the Christ. For unto you is born this day in the city of David a Savior who is Christ the Lord. The word Christ is not Jesus' last name. It is actually a title. Jesus the Christ. And in Greek, the word Christ means anointed one. It's equivalent to the Hebrew word Messiah. And it refers to the ancient Israelite, Israelite practice of anointing someone to a position of leadership with oil. It was a, it was a mark of, of legitimacy, a mark of authentication. So Christ, or Messiah, in a general sense, is someone who has been anointed with oil to designate them with leadership in an official capacity. In the Old Testament... The anointed ones most emphasized are kings. And so in the most general sense, when a Jew would have used the word Messiah, they would have thought just generally of a king. Every king was a Messiah. So from a purely superficial level, the child born in Bethlehem as Christ is destined to be a king. But he's not just any king. He's a particular king. In fact, in the Old Testament, God had ordained that the kings of Israel were to descend from a particular king, from King David himself. Jesus, born of the Virgin Mary and adopted by Joseph, belongs to the house and lineage of David, as we see in verse 4. And because he is David's descendant, he is qualified to be king over Israel. But Jesus is not merely eligible to be a king from any number of David's descendants. He's not simply one king in a long line of succession of kings. Jesus is the king that God promised to Israel in the Old Testament. Messiah with a capital M, or Christ with a capital C. Now because of the failures of Israel's kings in the Old Testament history, God promised by His prophets that He would raise up one of David's heirs, whom the Jews would call the Messiah with capital M, to be the perfect, idyllic king. He would do more than rule like the other failed kings of Israel from their times past. But this one would rule the right way. He would honor God and establish righteousness and justice. He would mediate God's peace and blessing in its fullness to God's people forever. This is the one whom Isaiah spoke about as we opened our service this morning from Isaiah chapter 9, verses 6 and 7. For to us a child is born. 
To us a son is given, and the government shall be upon his shoulder, and his name shall be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. Of the increase of his government and of his peace there will be no end. On the throne of David and over his kingdom to establish it and to uphold it with justice and with righteousness from this time forth and forevermore. The zeal of the Lord of hosts will do this. Also in Micah chapter 5, verses 2 through 5. But you, O Bethlehem Ephrathah, who are too little to be among the clans of Judah, from you shall come forth for me one who is to be ruler in Israel, whose origin is from old, from ancient days. And he shall stand and shepherd his flock in the strength of the Lord, in the majesty of the name of the Lord his God. And they shall dwell secure. For now he shall be great to the ends of the earth. And he shall be their peace. And so the expectation, this expectation for Messiah, this king, lingered among the Jews at the beginning of the first century. They believed that God would send his Messiah, Messiah with a capital M, or Christ with a capital C. And they believed that this Messiah would deliver them from Roman duress. He would bring God's salvation to them. He would reestablish David's throne and David's kingdom. And he would inaugurate a just and righteous reign, ushering in God's peace and blessing. And so when the angel announces to the shepherds that the child born in Bethlehem is the Christ, he's talking about this king. This king that God had promised to his people now for generations. Jesus is Israel's king. And in time, he would establish his kingdom. And he would call all those who need salvation to enter in and find rescue from sin and safety from harm and eternal life and blessing under the specter of his reign. Now, Jesus did not set up a political kingdom during his time on earth. Because his kingdom is not of this world. But it is superimposed on this world. His reign extends over all that God created. And that includes you and me. We are rightful subjects to his kingly authority. And yet by our sinfulness, we rebelled against his kingship. We sought to make ourselves kings over, his, over our foe kingdoms. But Jesus is king. And He will reign forever and ever. And He will bring His reign to bear upon our lives. He will bring to an end every kingdom that is opposed to Him. The question is, will it be by force? Or will it be by peace? Will He break you with a rod of iron over a clay pot? Or will you cease your rebellion and surrender to His rule? Will you enter his kingdom by repenting of your sins and trusting in Christ and come to know the safety and the bliss of his glorious rule? Do not be deceived by the weak and helpless and powerless form of a tiny baby lying in a manger. As the angels told the shepherds, this child is King Jesus, the King of kings. What child is this? He is the Christ. He is our King. But this child is more than a Savior, and He is more than the Christ. The child is also the Lord. For unto you is born this day in the city of David a Savior who is Christ the Lord. The word Lord in Greek means very much, uh, very similar to a word like King, the word King we've just talked about. 
It refers to a position of sovereign authority. If there's any nuance to that, we look at the rest of the scripture and we see that the word Lord implies two other important aspects of this child identity. From a secular perspective, the word Lord is more all-encompassing than the word king. The word king refers to a single people's ruler, but the word Lord indicates a ruler over many peoples, maybe like the word emperor that the Romans would have used at that time. In that sense, the word Lord, as it applies to Jesus, points to his sovereign authority over more than just a nation. He is more than just a king over Israel. He is more than just a king over the Jewish people. But rather, this word Lord signals his sovereign authority and rulership over all peoples and all nations, even over all creation itself. When we say that Jesus is Lord, we are saying that he is the sovereign ruler over all that God has made. And in that sense, I find it ironic that the baby lying in the manger is actually the sovereign ruler over all creation. When Caesar Augustus was acting in his authority as Roman emperor to direct all peoples in his empire to their hometowns to register for the census, he was actually doing the Lord's bidding to ordain the very circumstances that would lead to his incarnation and birth. So the word Lord indicates Christ's sovereign authority. But the word Lord is also significant for another purpose. In the Old Testament, the title Lord is most often applied to Israel's God. It's most often applied to Yahweh. Yahweh is the Lord. And in fact, in the other three times in this passage where the word Lord is used, it refers to Israel's God. It refers to the person that we would call God. So to call the babe in verse 11 the Lord is to put him in the same category as God himself. It is even to equate him with God by giving him a name that is ascribed to the Lord, to God. That's quite an identification. If Jesus is God, it means that he is no ordinary human being. And his birth is no ordinary event. His life is not like any other human life. He deserves the adoration and worship and celebration that we give him at Christmas because he is worthy of adoration and worship and celebration, period. But Jesus' identification as Lord, his identification as Yahweh incarnate, his identification as Israel's God is some, it means indicates something even further. It means that God took on human flesh in order to dwell among us. John writes in John 1.1, In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God. All things were made through Him, and without Him was not anything made that was made. In Him was life, and the life was the light of men. And the Word became flesh and dwelt among us. And we have seen His glory Glory as of the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. See, brothers and sisters, God took on human flesh. He was born of the Virgin Mary on Christmas night 2,000 years ago. For what purpose? To draw near to us. To dwell among us. To reveal God to us. We could not draw near to God. We could not dwell with God. We could not even know God because of our sinfulness. But God in His grace drew near to us. And He dwelt among us so that we might know Him and see the fullness of His glory and find salvation and life and safety in Him. The baby in the manger was 
God our Creator, the Lord of all. And yet He humbled Himself and made Himself nothing, taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men. Why? To draw near to us, so that we might have life and salvation in His name. That humiliation reached its apex in His crucifixion. For as Paul says in Philippians 2, He humbled Himself to the point of death, even death on a cross. It was by His death that our sins are forgiven. It is by His death that we are reconciled to God. It is by His death that we have life in His name. And this crucified God, this crucified Christ, we are told that God raised Him from the dead to everlasting glory. And because He is risen, every knee will bow and every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. So the question for us would be, do you acknowledge Jesus as Lord? It really doesn't matter in the grand scheme of things because He is Lord whether you acknowledge Him or not. The question is, will you submit to that now? Or will you submit to that later when it is too late? You will one day confess that Jesus is Lord, whether in this life or on the day of judgment. If you happen to be here this morning and don't know Christ as Savior... If you do not confess Him as Lord, then I pray that you will. That is the message of Christmas. That this this Christ, this Savior, this Lord came into the world so that we might be saved. That's what the angel was declaring to the shepherds. And that is what we declare to you this day. What child is this? He is the Lord. For unto you is born this day in the city of David a Savior who is Christ the Lord. This child is Savior. This child is Christ. This child is Lord. These three titles reveal the greatness of Mary's son. At the time of his birth, the angel's announcement about Jesus looked forward to his mission, what he would do for his people. That child grew into a man And he fulfilled his mission. He is Savior because he has saved us. He is Christ because he reigns over his kingdom. He is Lord because he has brought all things under his dominion. We take some instruction here from how the shepherds responded. How ought we to respond to this news? Well, the shepherds, we see their initial fear gave way to perplexity. Perplexity gave way to curiosity. Curiosity gave way to anticipation. Anticipation gave way to faith. Faith made way for joy. And joy made way for witness. How will you respond to this news? It's just as true as it was 2,000 years ago. Will you find salvation in the Savior? Will you submit yourself to King Jesus? Will you draw near to the Lord who has drawn near to us. Do not let this day pass without treasuring and cherishing this great gift that God has given to the world. What child is this who laid to rest on Mary's lap is sleeping, whom angels greet with anthems sweet while shepherds watch are keeping? This, this is Christ the King whom shepherds guard and angels sing. Haste, Haste to bring him laud, 
the babe, the son of Mary. Let us pray. Lord, we are indeed grateful for this great gift of King Jesus. The Word of God made flesh, came into the world, born of the Virgin Mary on that night in Bethlehem 2,000 years ago, to grow into a man who would go to the cross and die for our sins so that we could have life and relationship with you. What more can we say? What more can we do than simply say thank you and trust in this precious gift? And so we do this morning, Lord. We recommit ourselves to you. We reinvigorate our faith. We once again confess that Jesus Christ is our Savior. He is our King. He is the Lord. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.